Fathers, we again just go over the same things again and again. New words, different concepts, different thoughts, but really fundamentally, O oh Lord, the, the same truth again and again. I pray that we would never grow tired of hearing of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That we would never grow tired of thinking of Him raised from the dead. May our hearts sing, Oh, what a morning, a glorious day when Christ was risen, when He was up from the tomb. God, when He conquered our sin, when He conquered death and purchased our pardon, may that that truth ring in our hearts, God, all the time. And may we remind ourselves of those things and may today be a healthy reminder. May we again look to Jesus with new affections as we reflect once again upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the implications that follow after that. Give us a a faithfulness, O Lord, to pursue You. We need it. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13. I was looking to chart out 2 Timothy. We should be done by Christmas time or so. Uh, taking about uh, four messages per chapter. We'll, we'll finish this there. Um, then I've got some, some plans for the next book, I run that by Darren and Phil before I announce it to you. But I wanted to uh, show you the, the cover of uh, last week's Rockford Register Star. It's a nice rose upon maybe a, a tombstone. I don't even know. It's some kind of uh, monument. It's uh, from the memorial dedication. I don't, some kind of memorial here of the people who passed away in the terrorist attack. It just says right here, two words... Never forget. Never forget. Ten years was last Sunday. And uh, of course, ten years from the terrorist attack made our nation when two planes flew into the World Trade Center towers. One flew into the Pentagon. One crashed in rural Pennsylvania. All across our nation, there were services of remembrance. Uh, at Ground Zero, there were several services. Some for the family, some for the community, some different purposes. Community events were held all across our country. Church services held prayers offered many churches for the commemoration of that day, as even we did as our church last Sunday. Just thought about, reflected upon September 11th and the attack upon us. And, and all this was done to remember September 11th. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? What a really strange thing. How, how could we ever forget September 11th? And I asked SR, um, who's 15 now, you would have been five back then. I said, do you remember what happened on that day? He says, yeah, I remember. And described then on that day going downstairs and watching on our TV. You remember that too, Krista? And he said, yeah, with the old paneling that used to be up there and the old couch. And he just remembers vividly where... Where that's a 15-year-old. So I imagine, you know, just right on that cusp, three, four, five years of age, that anyone who's 13 or high will never forget that day. Our children will go to their graves remembering that day. So it seems on one hand a little bit, bit strange why we would need a day like that. But we do. That's the way our minds work. We need constant reminders. And we need to be reminded of the crucial days of history and and we need to be reminded of our vulnerability as a nation 
And we need to be reminded how vigilant we need to be against future attacks. Um, you know, people complain about the airport security. It's never bothered me because I'd rather get on a plane that's safe. might require a little bit extra time, but it's, it's okay. We need constant reminders. A Christian life is no different. Christian ministry is no different. We need reminders. We need reminders of what God has done for us. We need reminders of how faithful God is to us. That's why it's important just to read the Scriptures every day. Just to be reminded reminded because we forget. Moses, God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, told them to remember what God is doing for you this day. Even the night before the Passover, listen to what Moses said, even before they were redeemed, he said, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, by a powerful hand. For the Lord your God brought you out from this place. And the Jews remember that day every, every year. The Passover celebration, remembering what God did in Israel, redeeming them from sleep. Forty years later, Moses said the same thing. Deuteronomy 15.15 You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Remember, think, and reflect that you were a slave, but God redeemed you and now you're free. John Newton so needed that reminder that that was the placard that sat in front of his desk. Deuteronomy 15.15 Remember that you were a slave and the Lord your God redeemed you. The Psalms are sprinkled with remembrances of what God did in Egypt. Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, 106, 107. Constantly speaking about what God did in the days of Israel when He had the plagues. And He rescued Israel, redeemed them by a mighty hand. The New Testament is no different. Jesus knew that we needed reminders. The Last Supper, Jesus took bread and He said, this is My body which is broken for you. Even before He died, He was giving us a symbol so as to remember His death. And then He said, this do, eat this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant of My blood. Do this often to drink it in remembrance of Me. And I think what Jesus is doing is those two elements point to Jesus and point to the cross, what was going to happen. And He wants us to remember that. He wants us to remember the cross. It's the, the crucial thing in our lives. And we will do that at the end of our service this morning, celebrating the supper, just even as we see the remembrance in our text. Well, in the text this morning, verses 8-13 through 13 of chapter 2, Paul is just reminding Timothy of the basics of Christian ministry. The basics of Christian life. Saying the same thing again and again. He starts off with this word, remember. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my Gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Paul's not telling Timothy anything new here. He's reminding Timothy again and again what's the heart of ministry. Going over one more time. I mean, just even look at this. It says, remember Jesus Christ. 
Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Right? Remember the resurrection. Remember Jesus Christ, descendant of David, come into the flesh of the messianic line. Remember, verse 9, why I'm suffering hardship. Remember why I'm imprisoned. It is for the Gospel. Remember that. Remember that the Word of God, though, isn't bound. Remember that it's powerful to convert the elect. Paul then finishes in verse 11 through 13 with this familiar hymn. In fact, most, most scholars say this is a hymn. It's something they would have sung, perhaps, in their worship services. Perhaps maybe they chanted it. Maybe they repeated it. It's a faithful statement, trustworthy statement, again and again, that loyalty to Christ will meet with reward, but disloyalty will face the frown of God. Remember these things. You could outline this passage in several different ways. I've just chosen one way because I think it keeps the core of just what are the basic things. First point this morning is remember the heart of the Gospel. Remember the heart of the Gospel. You could be the point, remember Jesus, everything He did. You could say it that way too. But that's what verse 8 says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my Gospel. There's where I picked up the word. Remember Jesus. It speaks of His resurrection, right? Risen from the dead. <clears throat> speaks of His incarnation, a descendant of David, born of David. It, it speaks of the, the Messianic lineage, of, of how David passed on right his seed from one generation to another, and that came to Jesus when He was born. All these things, these three things, these two things really, resurrection and incarnation, are, are central, crucial to the Gospel. They're, they're not everything. They're not the whole Gospel, but they're central to it. See, the Gospel is all about Jesus. What he, who He is and what He did. The Incarnation implies His humanity. Jesus was fully God of fully God to be sure, but He was fully man of man as well. His resurrection here implies everything about His crucifixion. I mean, you can't be, you can't be raised from the dead unless you are dead. And that's implied here as well. And the crucifixion and the resurrection is our hope. It even says in Romans chapter 4 that by His resurrection we are justified. It is crucifixion where Jesus paid for our sins according to the Scriptures. And it's good news that Jesus died for us. And by faith in Jesus, we are made righteous in Him. It's the Gospel we believe. And Paul calls it here, my Gospel. Not, not in the sense that Paul was the source of the Gospel, but in the sense that Paul is a minister of the Gospel. But a remarkable thing I find it here is that Paul would feel the need to remind Timothy of this. I mean, isn't this a surprise in the text? Why, why would Timothy need a reminder of this? He was a minister of the Gospel, trained in the Apostle Paul, observed him for many, many years, observed how relentlessly he spoke about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was with them in Corinth. When he saw Jesus, we saw Paul just determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And yet, how could Timothy ever forget Jesus? And yet, apparently, Paul felt he could. And what was a possibility with Timothy is certainly a possibility in our day and age. I'd contend that there are many people and many church-going people who forget Jesus Christ. Oh, they don't, don't forget Him in name. Um, they don't forget Him in picture or whatever or in word. They, they remember Christmas and Easter. They remember the Incarnation. They remember the Resurrection. But they really don't remember Jesus. They, 
They see Jesus a bit differently. They, they don't see Him for truly for what He is. Oh, sure, they go to church, socialize with church friends, aren't involved in many social sins, aren't divorced, they're nice people, they don't drink, they, they lead an upright life, think they're nice people, they give to charity, they help out the community, involvement, whatever, whatever. And basically, the religion is moralism. Moralism is the religion of many today. Where they, just, they think, hey, I'm good, I'm nice, I'm okay. They, they see Jesus as an example to follow. He was a moral guy, so I need to follow Him. And to the extent that I follow Him, I'm doing good. And I just ask you, is moralism your religion? A study was done in World Magazine several years back. And uh, some people studied just uh, the faith, quote-unquote, of teenagers and discovered that teenagers don't understand. Children don't understand fully the implication of the Christian faith. And I think it's probably because the parents don't understand what the Christian faith is about. And, and uh, the study then labeled what people really believe as an MTD, moralistic, therapeutic deism where there's just a, a moralism that's a therapeutic. What's going to help me? Because that's, that's what I'm living by. And this deism, this God is up there, out there, not involved. And that's the reality of many. And it may be the reality of you. So think about this. Where is your comfort derived? When you think about your relationship with God, where do you find comfort? Do you find comfort that you're attending church this morning? You go home and you think, oh, I attended church. I did God a good thing. Do you find comfort in your dedication maybe after you read the Bible? Do you read your Bible? You do read your Bible? Great, Ruthie. And then you put it in yourself and said, yeah, I read the Bible, right? Look at how good. Look. And you find your comfort. Maybe you say, yeah, I please God that I've, I've read the Bible. Or maybe it's other things. Maybe it's just your Bible knowledge. Maybe it's you can discern between truth and error. And that you know all the issues of life and can discern right and wrong. You say, yeah, that's where I find my comfort. That I, I'm wise. I'm going to go down the right track. Is that where you find your comfort? Maybe you find your, your comfort in the state of your family. All oh, my family affairs are in order. Or maybe the state of your marriage. Hey, the things, or maybe your house. Maybe, you know, we got, the, we got this all figured out. Or maybe my business. Maybe I'm prospering. Or maybe in life. I'm doing, is that where you find your comfort? You just ask this question, what if it was taken away? Did you find comfort? No. That's right. Thanks, Ruthie. <laughs> you all can be involved with that as well. Okay, that's, she's just doing what you all should be doing. Amening and, yeah, preach it, brother. We can do that too, okay? We need to, we need to learn from that. That's very good. But if it's taken away, that's where you really find. So what happens if, you know, for some reason you're really busy in your life and you don't read your Bible for a week? I'm not advising that. But, but do you f lack comfort then in God? What if some of your wealth was taken away? Or what if some of your children went astray? What if your marriage starts to crumble? We've missed church for a while. What? I think some of those things, we might find false... False comfort, because our comfort as a believer in Christ should only be in Jesus. That's not to say you should go weeks without reading your Bible. I'm not saying that. 
But if you find your comfort in the fact that you've been disciplined enough to read, maybe you're just moralistic. Your comfort should be in Jesus Christ, the One who's raised from the dead, who, who took the wrath of God upon Him and realized that, that in Him is everything. And, and when you go home from church today, you should say, not, oh look, I went to church, I did a good job today. You say, God, my attending church today is only an expression of my need for You. I trust that I receive some blessing from the Word today and from the singing and from the people because I need that. That's a Christ-centered life. Or when you read your Bible, you get done with it, you say, God, that was only an expression. I just read because I, I have no hope apart from You and I just need to hear from You. I, I need the grace that You give. And reading the Bible is an act of dependence. Not arrogance, it's dependence upon You. That's how all of your religious deeds should be seen. Now, again, I understand, right? I'm not... You should be about doing good deeds. You should be about reading your Scriptures. You should be about being with the people of God. And they all help, but they all should help us increase our dependence upon Jesus and His sacrifice upon the cross. Because quite frankly, the... The liberal church don't really see, doesn't really see Jesus and the cross important. What's, what's important is, is living morally and serving humanity. Good things to be sure, but empty apart from the work of Christ. If you think all your things are meriting anything, you're a modern day Pharisee. But many of the liberal church really forgotten Jesus. Now, the, the, the issue is that they've forgotten Jesus. You know that they're, when you think about Jesus, you think about Him as a substitute. You think about Him bearing the wrath of God for our sins in our place. There are many in churches, maybe more in the leadership of churches who understand theologically what's going on, who, who hate that doctrine. Who, who, who have called it divine child abuse. That God would inflict these things upon a child. Rather, they want to see Jesus an example of love. He's one to follow, and then we follow Him. Well, you see where that's moralistic, therapeutic deism? Right, we're following Him, we're doing well. That's forgetting Jesus. It's not that we follow Him, we do well. It's that we're bankrupt and He's our all, and we love Him and serve Him as a result. That's what it means to remember Jesus, and I think that people have, have lost that Jesus. Look down at chapter 3, verse 5. Try to figure this out. Here are some wicked people who are characterized in verse 2 as being lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and loving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, self-control, brutal, haters of good. I mean, these are not, these are not righteous people. Look what it says in verse 5. Is they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. There's this, this external charade, charade, what, facade. That's what I'm looking for. There's a facade of godliness that people look good although they've denied the power. And you can go to church and you can pray grace before meals and God can be absent from your home. You've got this form of godliness because you've got this moralistic thing captured because every week you're reminded about all the things you need to do. But then really... It's just a charade. You're just acting it out. There's no power. I just say, is God in your home? Is God active in your life? Because that's what, that's what I think Paul is getting at here when he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It's not the fact of the resurrection. It's not the doctrinal 
importance of the resurrection as much as it is a living reality of Jesus Christ raised from the dead in you, empowering you not to just have this form of godliness denying the power. Rather, it's a Jesus Christ. Because it's only through Christ and His power that we can be committed like the soldier and dedicated like the athlete and motivated like the farmer we saw last week. That's the point of chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Let Jesus strengthen you. Let that power of God be in you. That's genuine religion. And that's remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember His power. Right? He conquered death. He conquered sin. And through Him, we can conquer death and sin as well. See, living the Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. And we can't do it apart from Jesus. We can't do it apart from the risen Christ actively strengthening us on a moment-by-moment-by-moment basis. And that's why all the, the means of grace that we do They help us to trust upon Jesus. So remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. This word places Jesus in history. Jesus isn't some comic strip character like Superman. He's not some television cartoon like Batman. He he isn't some fictitious man like Paul Bunyan. right? Just big and strong and chop down trees, but... Really, He's not there. No. Jesus is real. He's of the line of David. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. Trace His lineage. And He's an actual person. He lived. He breathed upon the earth. Born in the line of David. And and the implication there is His messianic promises, right? Born in Bethlehem according to messianic promise. Baptized in the river Jordan by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. A powerful, God-anointed, Holy Spirit-anointed One who was anointed with power. He was mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all people. He never sinned. He lived righteously, but He lived. He touched people. He healed people. He talked with people. He walked with people. And He was crucified on the cross every bit as much as the thief on His right and the thief upon His left, gasping for breath, trying to breathe, finally breathing His last. He was physically placed in a tomb. And as much as physical reality of what He is, He paid physically for our sins, what they needed spiritually as well. And I just think even about Jesus in a tomb. You know, there, there are theologians. I remember... a. Um, it was Francis Schaeffer had, a, had an opportunity to meet um, Schleiermacher. It's a German theologian. If you, how many of you heard of Schleiermacher before? Nobody? Darren, you've heard of Schleiermacher, of course. So, Schleiermacher, one of the liberal, and, and people kind of follow this. And Bart came kind of after that. And the question is, maybe you didn't meet Schleiermacher. He was 1850. Maybe it was Bart he was meeting. And uh, Francis Schaeffer said, okay, if you got the camera on the tomb, what would you see? Bart, an influential theologian in the church today, would not believe that a stone rolled away and that a physical body was there and raised. We don't believe that. But this is what's saying. This is real truth. This is not some imaginary story. Remember Jesus Christ. He was a man descended from David. Substantive. Real. We're, we're talking reality here. We're not just talking some philosophy. We're talking about a, a real man who's dead, raised from the dead. 
the God-man Jesus Christ. And, uh, and again, descendant of David, that's got messianic overtone. He comes with all the blessings of Messiah towards us. And there's the wonderful thing. Is that, is, is that God, as we believe and trust in Christ, pours abundant blessings upon us. Not because we earn it, but simply because we believe and trust. And so live in that reality. Right? Know the heart of the Gospel. It's all about Jesus. Well, remember, secondly, my second point here, remember the power of the Word. That's how I've chosen to summarize verses 9 and 10. Lots of different things going on here because he, he, Paul talks about his imprisonment. Then he talks about the Word of God. Then he talks about why he endures these things. Then he talks about salvation. Lots of different things. But I think you can sum it up well. The, the linchpin that holds all together, I think, is the power of the Word. Look at verse 9. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Now, Paul can hardly talk about the Gospel without... I'm sorry, verse 9. I read verse 10. Verse 9, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. And there he is in both verse 9 and verse 10. He talks straight about his suffering. He talks about his hardship. He talks about his imprisonment. He talks about enduring all things. And he can hardly talk about the Gospel without talking about those things. The Gospel is just mentioned in verse 8. According to my Gospel. It's according to that Gospel I suffer hardship. It's also in chapter 1, verse 8. Similar thing. Do not be ashamed, chapter 1, verse 8, of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. It's the Gospel, believing in Jesus Christ crucified for our sins that gets Him into suffering. Or, or verse 10, He speaks about the Gospel, right? Who abolished death and brought life and immortality through the Gospel. He says, of that Gospel, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And then he says in verse 12, for this reason. What, what reason? He's appointed a preacher, and teacher, and apostle of the Gospel. And for that reason, I also suffer these things. And here comes the suffering and hardship. In chapter 2, verse 9, follows right off of his mention of the Gospel. Those like two things were tied in Paul's mind. To believe in Jesus meant difficulty in this world. But, he says this, even though I'm imprisoned, even though I'm treated as a criminal, as a malefactor, that is someone evil and wicked in society, even though I'm not evil and wicked, I was treated that way, he says, but the Word of God it can't be treated that way. The Word of God can't be imprisoned. You may threaten those who speak it. You may imprison those who preach it. You may kill those who spread it. But to no avail, God's Word will never be bound. And this is a great truth for us to hear today. You know, it's a bit like when the, the daughter of the mayor lost her canary bird. The daughter said, oh no, my daughter. It's like if Hannah, we just, by the way, oh, you guys know that we've got one pet in our family, right? A parallet. And his name, remember his name? Kevin. We got a new pet this week. Okay, do you know that? Another parallet. And his name is Dexter. Exactly right. So, We've got to keep them apart now and they're going to try to put them in cages eventually. But there's Dexter. But So imagine I'm the mayor and one of Dexter gets away. Here's what the mayor, this old mayor did. He was a wise father. He gave strict orders that all the gates of the town should be shut so the creature wouldn't escape. But soon the birds was, was soaring over the hills and far away despite locking the gates. You know, that's what the Word of God is like. You might try to bound it, but it's going to fly away. 
It's, it's like a bird can fly away from the gates because he can go up and over the gate. A gate can't go that high and you can't find prison walls strong enough to bound the, the Word of God. Spurgeon of this story says this, When a truth once known, no human power can prevent its spreading. Attempts to hinder its progress will be as ineffectual as the mayor's proclamation. As the bird of the air, truth flies abroad on swift wings. As the ray of light, it enters palaces and cottages. As an unfettered wind, it laughs at laws and prohibitions. Walls cannot contain it, nor iron bars imprison it. It is free and it makes free. Let every free man be upon its side. And so, let him never allow a doubt of its ultimate success to darken his soul. The Word of God will go forth. It's not imprisoned. And that was great comfort to Paul. And that was great comfort then also to Timothy. It was great comfort to Martin Luther. Martin Luther knew full well what made the Reformation go. It wasn't his ingenuity or his talents or his ability to escape the papists, though he was on the run, though he was greatly gifted, and he had great talents, was Martin Luther. No, it was the power of the Word of God. Listen to his testimony. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists but never with force. I mean, he, he, resist Rome. he resisted Rome. He resisted the indulgences that say you, you pay money to the church and your, you know, your, your soul will go up to heaven faster. He, he resisted all of that. He spoke strong and hard, but he says it was never with force. I simply preached and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. He said, just preached and wrote God's Word. He said, I did nothing else. And while I slapped or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. Luther says the Word did everything. He just opened up the Scriptures. Opened up justification by faith alone. And particularly the Word that, that stirred the Reformation was justification by faith alone. Everything I tried to expound in verse 8. That's the word he let loose. And that's the word that had its effect in Europe. And that's the word that had its effect ever. You start changing that, it's not going to fly. The most famous hymn, Almighty Fortress Our God, Luther writes, The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. You may kill the body. And I think some sense he's thinking about himself. A body, you may kill me, but God's truth is going to last beyond me, beyond every king, beyond every pope, it's going to be there. Such is the power of the Word of God. It, it can't be stopped. And now, that's back to verse 9. That's why he, Paul gladly endured the sufferings of prison. And that's what verse 10 says. He says, since the Word of God is, is not bound, I willingly suffer. Verse 10, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Because Paul knows that his imprisonment isn't preventing the Word of God from spreading, he gladly endured it. The endurance here, enduring all things, it's not so much that he's complaining and bearing up against it. He's kind of like, you know what? I... I can handle this because I know something else is going to happen. I know that my imprisonment is actually going to be a means to something. I, I quoted this earlier, I think, in my first sermon in 2 Timothy. 
when he told the Philippians about his time in prison. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. My circumstances, my imprisonment has turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. So he says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. In other words, there are two things happening there. First of all, he says that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. That's everybody in prison knew all about Jesus because Paul was there. And it was only in some ways because Paul was there that people heard about it and knew about it. Maybe you can think about his time when he was in Philippi. Remember what took place? He was on the second missionary journey. He was in Philippi. He went to visit the churches and in Philippi he was beaten with rods, thrown in jail unjustly even though he was a Roman. And you remember what Paul and Silas were doing in prison in Philippi? The kids, well, they're singing hymns, right Darcy? They're singing hymns in prison. So when you sing hymns joyfully, hymns of praise to God, and it says in Acts 16.25 that everyone listening to them sing, what's make, being made known? The gospel is being made known throughout the whole prison, throughout all the guards. And then when that earthquake hit and everyone's chains were loosed and the, the jailer's about to kill himself because he found out, oh, the, the prisoners are going to escape and if they escape, the Romans are going to kill me because I'm in charge of keeping them bound and they're not going to buy this earthquake thing. It's not going to be any sort of excuse. So he went to kill himself. Yet Paul cried out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What was the jailer's response? He asked a question. Remember what he said? Yeah, what must I do to be saved? I think he heard the Gospel, saw their imprisonment, saw what was happening, and just as in Philippi, he was going throughout the whole... Just as he was in prison someplace else writing to Philippi, he said the whole Praetorian Guard is knowing about that. Even in Philippi, the, the whole jail was hearing about the Gospel, and so much so that the earthquake had caused the Gospel to flourish and to go. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and all your household. And that's what happened. His whole household believed in God. So the sufferings of, of Paul brought about the salvation of the jailer. And in that sense, he understands that, that he will endure all things because in enduring all things, he's going to bring salvation to people, even to those in prison. And then furthermore, as it said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, is that that people, as they heard about Paul's facing suffering with joy, they said, if he's in prison with joy, oh, well, certainly then I can, I can fall on that. I can speak boldly. There must be something to this because you don't suffer for error. You suffer for truth. And people were emboldened in their speech. And the Word of God went out forth more boldly. And, and, and here's a curious thing. You try to suppress it, and it squirms out and it goes out more and more than ever. That's the manner of the Word. Try as hard as you might to suppress it. It's going to spread further. I mean, just, just think about maybe a, maybe a cup of water or a, a container of water. Maybe that's um, plastic or maybe that's a cardboard or something where you can then get, get some kind of surface and you press down on that water and you keep pressing down. What's going to happen? It's going to burst. It's going to leak. And things are going to spread out all over the place. And pretty soon, right, you flatten that person, right? You've, you flatten that, but all of a sudden the water's not going anywhere. The water's not getting compressed. The water's spreading out and getting everything wet. 
That's how it is with the gospel. You, you start you start suppressing it, it's going to spread further. Case in point is China. They, the, the Chinese government, sought to pr- suppress Christian activity in China. In 1953, all of the foreign missionaries were expelled. At that time, uh, estimates I have, I read best like my ability, 700,000 Christians in China at that time, 1953. What's going to happen when you, you take all the well-trained, well-taught missionaries out of China? I mean, they were the ones able to teach and lead the Chinese people, Right? And now you take all the leadership away. What's going to happen to the church in China? Right? Chinese government, as you're suppressing Christian activity and your communist atheistic regime, what's going to happen to the Christianity in China? Well, the government officials haven't figured it out yet. They think it's going to suppress it and squash it. It actually happens. It's spread and spread and spread and spread. That's what happened. Current estimates, there are between 50 and 100 million in Christians in China now, without the help of foreign missionaries, thank you very much. Because how God's Word takes place. So what persecution does. Persecution fuels the fire of the Word of God. Try as you might to suppress the Word of God. It will continue to flourish. It will be free and, and bound. Free, free, to, free to go. But you know what? I, I do think there's a way that you can um, maybe not bind the Word of God but make it ineffectual? I think the way to make it ineffectual is to make Christianity easy. Make living life really easy. Living in a culture that's rich, that has no need of God. Living in a culture that like costs you nothing to be a Christian. And you know what happened? The Word of God, though it's free to go, free every place, stagnates like water in a pond. You won't be bound, but you have no power. I believe that's what's happened in America today. It's free. It's so free! Things are good for us. Why do people need God here? They don't need God. They don't have everything they need. Why do they need Jesus? Days were different back in Paul and Timothy's day. If you profess Christ, you could spend your days in a prison cell. And there's, there's no way, though, that the Word of God is going to be bound and stopped, except possibly by affluence like in our day. But Paul wasn't discouraged by these things. Verse 10 says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. He endured because he had this eternal perspective. He, he knew that his sufferings were instrumental to the salvation of the elect. I and mean, that's how verse 10 reads in most translations except the NAS. Better is other translations. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of the elect. That's what it is. The elect. Those who are chosen before the foundation of the world. As Ephesians 1 says, to be in Christ. These are the ones that God predestined to adoption as sons. They're chosen not because goodness of people, not because of foreseen action of what people would do, not because people deserve to be saved, but by a sheer expression of God's grace. That's who the elect are. And in fact, it has to be that way. If God foresees our faith and foresees something in us, it's us who deserve to be saved. And that destroys the grace of the Gospel. But when it's even before we do anything good or bad that God chooses us and elects us and calls us, that's grace. And that's the Gospel. And Paul knew that if the Word of God would go out, the elect would hear, 
that they would be saved and they'd obtain this salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. And what's interesting here is it, it's, not, it's not for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who might believe. It's more I endure all things for the sake of the chosen who will believe when the Word of God comes. There's a certainty to this. And I think that certainty helps Paul in his imprisonment. God not only ordains before the foundation of the world those who will be saved, He also ordains the means. And the means is suffering. It's no accident that Paul is suffering as a prisoner. It was God's plan to save the elect in his sphere of influence. Now, now sure, it was painful. He didn't like the discomfort. In chapter 4, Paul's going to talk about, hey, Timothy, bring a cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus because I'm cold. I, I need your help. It's not pleasant. But Paul understood there's a greater reality going on. That's why I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Right? Paul had read the book. Or Timothy, yeah, Paul had read the book. Don't waste your imprisonment. Right? That John Piper was going to write. Don't waste your imprisonment. He wasn't wasting it. Because he knew that he was in prison. He knew this was going to turn out for the greater progress of the Gospel. And he knew that by his experiences of suffering, Paul was going to be the means to save some. God was going to do it through him. Okay, think about the missionary journey. Second missionary journey, Paul and Silas go back to visit the churches where Paul was before Derby, Lystra, and then he goes to Macedonia through Philippi, which I already talked about. And then after Philippi, he goes on to, to Berea. It's at Thessalonica. At Thessalonica, the Jews were stirred up. They kicked him out of town. So he went to Berea. At Berea, the Jews were stirred up. They kicked him out of town. At Athens, Athens was so intellectual and you can believe anything that a lot of people didn't really even care. Eventually then after Athens, he, he lands in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. In Corinth, similar kind of thing. He's expecting to get booted from that city and on to the next. But the Lord appeared to Paul in the night by vision saying this, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, when God says to Paul, don't be afraid, no one's going to attack you, it's because he's afraid and people he's thinking might attack him. He says, don't be afraid, I'm going to protect you. I've got this, this, this hedge around you because I have many people in this city. Now, it's not that he has many godly people, it's not that he has many Christians. Paul is bringing the gospel to Corinth for the first time. This is the first time anybody's heard the gospel as Paul goes into Corinth. And he says, i got many people in the city. What does that mean? But that God has his elect... He's foreknown. He's predestined. And there they are. He says, Paul, I'm going to use you to get to these people. And what confidence that would have put in Paul. And he stayed there for 18 months just preaching and teaching the Word of God. And he knew as it went out, it was going to be successful. As people heard it, and God worked in their life, they were going to be converted. That's who His people were. The elect were there. But Paul didn't know who the elect were. So he preached the gospel freely, and that's who we are. We don't know who the elect, elect are. One preacher has said it this way, if, if God had painted a yellow stripe upon the backs of the elect, I'd go around picking up all the shirt tails of everybody to see who's going to be the elect so I can preach to them so they can be saved. But since we, God hasn't done that and we don't know, we preach the gospel to all, and God brings in His sheep. God brings in His people. And, and you know, I've heard people talk about the sovereignty of God stifles evangelism. The sovereignty of God should not stifle evangelism. It should encourage it because you know when there's an elect there and God's got His hand on somebody, you bring the Word and God's going to bring them. It's going to work. It's not just that we have the Word and we put it out there and it might work. It will work. Now, it may not work for you this time, but it will work eventually. 
Because God's Word is powerful. This past week, a friend of mine on Facebook wrote this comment. Heaven knows how many souls are going to hell, so we've got to go in and get them. Heaven knows how many souls are in hell, so we've got to go in and get them. But think about what this is. It's biblical what's being said there. Sees the world is lost and going to hell and in need of rescue, so we got to go right in there. We got to snatch the people from the fire and pull them out, as Jude says. Right? We we got to get them. And that's that's well and good, but that's not what Second Timothy is teaching. That that is a biblical concept, but Second Timothy is a little bit different. I posted this in response: God knows how many will be in heaven, so we got to go out and get them. Right? You see the difference? And that's what Paul is saying. He says, there are people who are going to be in heaven. So, I'm suffering now and that's the means by which they're going to be saved. Because of the power of the Word of God. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. He's got My sheep out there. When the voice comes, they're going to hear it, and they're going to come, and they're going to be secure in Jesus. And that's what stirred Paul. Paul Paul knew the power of the Word, and therefore, when you know the power of the Word, imprisonment doesn't bother you. Difficulties in your life doesn't bother you, because that's when you know that that God's Word is powerful to go forth. In our prayer meeting, we looked at today uh, this week's fighter verse from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that uh, speaks about how... Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He prayed God that God would remove it from him. And yet, God said no. Three times He said no. Well, what's the issue there? Is that God's grace is going to work there like we talked about last week, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, be strong in the grace. But think about it even this way, is that it's in weakness that God flourishes. And even in the weaknesses of the things that happen upon your life, you can have confidence that the Word of God is powerful and it's going to work its effect. This is basic to Christian ministry. This is basic to Christian living. That God's will go out, God's word will go out, it'll accomplish all that he desires. It will not return empty. Isaiah fifty five one, fifty five eleven. It's a big motivating factor for Paul. It gave him the strength to persevere through the difficult trials of life because he knew that his trials were setting a path for the word of God to go and flourish, and he'd lead people to Jesus and lead them to eternal glory. That's how verse Ten ends, right? So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Don't you think that a little suffering in this life is worth eternal glory? Don't you think a little suffering in this life for you, suffering to lead others to glory is worth it? Paul was ready to be cast into hell if possible for the sake of the Jews. He said, I wish I myself were cursed separated, apart from Christ, for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, the Jewish people are my people, they're my flesh, and I wish I could be in hell so that they could be in heaven. Of course, that's impossible, but such speaks of his desire. And we also ought to say, boy, I can suffer. I can suffer if I know that's going to be the means to save people. That was the heart of Paul. should be the heart of Timothy. That's what he's trying to catch at. It should be our heart as well. The power of the Word. It's not mere hope. The word, it's guaranteed victory with the word. Let's remember the plan of the gospel. Let's remember the power of the word. Finally, let's learn to remember the promise of God. That's how I've cased verses 11 through 13. The promise of God, or maybe promises of God, you might put. 
the things that God has said come about. Because verse 11 even says, it is a trustworthy statement. That's five times in the pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. This phrase, is a trustworthy statement, appears. 1 Timothy 1, 15, 3, 1, 4, 9, and Titus chapter 3, verse 8. As I mentioned earlier, it is a, it is a hymn that, that most scholars think. This is a, a hymn that was sung. Well-known words. And each time when Paul quotes these trustworthy statements, he's, he's, he's basically saying, yep, this is my stamp of approval. These words are good. These words are true. You can trust these words. So listen, church family, you can trust these words. Four stanzas, all beginning with the word if. If we died, if we endure, if we deny Him, if we are faithless. Each of them... Then with God's response to our circumstance, if we died with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. first three stanzas are pretty simple to interpret. The last one is a bit more difficult. The first two speak of loyalty to Christ with reward coming after that. If we died with Him, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. The third one speaks about disloyalty and the tragic result that comes from that. If we deny Him, He will deny us. And the fourth one speaks about our failure to follow Christ completely and then the results. Now, some have taken this to be encouraging or some have taken this to be a warning. In other words, like the fourth stanza might be like this, if we're weak and lacking complete fidelity, God won't abandon us. He'll be faithful to us. He'll help us in our weaknesses. That's how some interpret it. Or some say this, if we are unbelieving, God remains truthful to His promises and He'll judge those who don't believe. Both are true. I mean, think about Peter. He denied the Lord, even according to the last phrase of verse 12. But it wasn't, it wasn't permanent. It was, just, it was just a weakness in His faith. So even if we are weak and lacking total fidelity to God, even like Peter was, we'll be restored to Him because He'll be faithful. He'll help us. Or consider Judas. He was unbelieving, betrayed Jesus. Jesus said to him, Woe be to that man. It would have been good for him not to have been born. And, and so whether, whether the very last phrase of verse 13 is a an encouragement or a warning. They're both true biblically. It's difficult to know exactly what they are. I do tend to think that it, it goes along the way of warning. I think you got two encouragements and I think you got two warnings. So I think the best way to, way to take it. Because that's all of what Timothy's about. Paul is trying to motivate Timothy to press on and, and to continue on. And I think that that's how he... He encourages him here in, in verse 13. Press on. Don't be faithless, right? But be a believer. Believe the Gospel. Believe the Word. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Him in all those ways. Well, let's just look briefly at the encouragements. If we died with Him, we'll live with Him. Paul wasn't in, prim- in prison without a promise. He wasn't looking just to inflict harm upon himself. He took, he took serious the words of Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me and deny himself and take up his cross, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. 
For what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And that's what Paul said. He said, I've died with Christ. I've given my all to Jesus. I'm no longer alive, but Jesus is my all. I'm willing to be a martyr. I'm ready to die for Him. And he knew the promise of Jesus that he would then live for Him. doesn't make death look so bad. If death is the path to life, you can walk down that path. It's calling Timothy to do the same, right? Remember the promise of God. If we endure, we'll reign with Him. Again, really the message is the same. But rather than talking about death and life, he's talking about uh, suffering and glorification. I endure all things. right? I, I suffer and I'm going to endure so that I can reign. And that's the great promise of the Gospel. He said we will reign. Paul said in another place, Romans 8.17, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that has revealed us in Christ Jesus. You put sufferings on one side, you put the glory, eternal glory that we'll have in the other. And eternal glory is far more valuable than any momentary light inflictions including beaten and imprisonment. And the promise of Scriptures, Revelation 5.10, is that we who endure until the end will reign upon the earth. The one who is faithful with the talents, Jesus said, good and faithful slave, you are faithful in a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Some of that is reigning. It's going to be worth it to endure. So endure. Third stands, if we deny Him, He will deny us. He's quoting Jesus. Matthew 10.33 Whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. If you're not willing to align yourself with Jesus, Jesus will not be willing to align yourself, Himself with you. That doesn't mean a, a temporary failure of faith like Peter is a good example of that. It means a permanent denial. Denial that leads to unbelief. A denial that says, I don't need a Savior. I'm okay on My own. A denial even that says, catch this one I said earlier, I just need an example to live by and I'll just live to the best of my abilities. That's denying Jesus. Jesus died to give us life. And you say, well, I'm just going to do the best I can. It's a slap in the face. Here we're talking about apostates, those who turn their back on Jesus. And that's why Timothy shouldn't give up. If the consequences are too great, life would be useless. You'd be thrown out like a garbage bag. If you deny Him, I guarantee you, church family, you will never be disappointed in any of the sufferings that you experience here in, wait, in light of the eternal glory you receive. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed in aligning yourself with Jesus and with His stands and the suffering and the flack that you take. You just wait in eternity. You'll never be disappointed. But you will regret every way you back down from the claims of Christ in eternity. You'll regret it. Forgiven by the blood of Christ, yes. Regret. Can we be regretful in eternity? I'm not sure. But if you can, you will be. So don't deny Him. Remember the promise of God. And finally, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. I think the best way to translate this is if we are unbelieving, that's what faithless means, unbelieving. God remains faithful. He can't deny Himself. John MacArthur said it this way. Some of you have John MacArthur study Bibles right there in your lap. I'll quote one for you. Quote it for you. As faithful as Jesus is to save those who believe in Him, He is equally faithful to judge those who do not. To act any other way would be inconsistent with His holy, unchangeable nature. See, God's going to be true to His Word. He's going to be merciful to the penitent. He's going to be wrathful to the proud. So let's believe Him. Let's trust Him. And let's endure. Let's fan the flame. Let's fight the fight. That's what Paul's calling Timothy to do. 
So remember the heart of the Gospel, the, the power of the Word, the promise of God. And, and what we're going to do this morning in the, in the Lord's Supper is to remember the, the heart of the Gospel. We're going to remember verse 8, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Perhaps you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when it says, as often as you eat the Lord's Supper and drink of the cup, what do we do? We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We proclaim His death, but He's not dead. He's alive and He's coming it. So we proclaim the Lord's death until He in His resurrected state comes unto us. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to proclaim His death. We're going to proclaim, here's His body. I'm trusting in the, the cross of Christ. Here's His cup. I'm trusting in the promise of the new covenant that, that God said, I'm going to put my laws upon your heart. You put them on your mind. You're going to know the Lord. And that's what we're proclaiming today. So let's bow our heads as we prepare to celebrate the supper. I would encourage you even now to examine your heart, examine your life as Paul tells us to do. If you're trusting in your own moralism to save you, this supper is not for you because this supper is for those who have placed their trust and their hope in Jesus. If you're harboring sin unrepentant, this supper is not for you. This supper is for all who, who love Jesus, who are repentant from their sin, who hate their sin, who are trusting in Christ and finding their comfort in the cross of Christ alone. So examine your heart and take of it in a worthy way. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. I thank You for just a the reminder here again of the Gospel. And we, we do believe in the power of the Gospel at Rock Valley Bible Church. And it's powerful to save and convert and bring to salvation. We, we believe in the power of the Word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. We, we believe in the power of God who elects, who sustains, who is sovereign over all things. Thank You, God, that You are such a great and powerful, omnipotent God that we can put our, put our trust in You. So we pray as we meet You here in the supper. God, encourage our hearts. Reflect again upon the old story. Jesus Christ died on Calvary. May we never forget Calvary. May it always bring to our hearts remembrance of what Christ had done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.